Are you sleuthy enough to find out what happened to your lost memory? Well, let's find out with Tesla Effect this week on the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Upper Memory Block podcast, episode 51, to be precise. I'm your host, Joe, and uh, I'm back with you once again, as I always am, to talk... Oh, well, actually, (laughs) I guess I'm getting that a little wrong this time. Uh, I'm back with you once again to talk about a game, but it's not from the pre-Windows XP or Dawson pre-Windows XP gaming era. It's actually incredibly new, so uh, we're, we're switching it up a little bit this week. But uh, we'll get into that in a little bit. Um, I guess we're almost into May. No, we are in May. I'm dumb. We're almost into June. I'm crazy tonight. And uh, the weather has finally uh, has finally turned. It's finally summer. It's finally warm. I'm finally able to... I cut the grass twice already since the last time we spoke, which, uh, which is pretty impressive, I guess, to uh, have only started doing that uh, near the end of May. Um yeah, it's great. I'm outside, running outside, went biking a little bit, uh, barbecuing. You know, the the summer is here. I guess we had uh, Victoria Day weekend two weeks ago or whatever. Yeah, two weeks ago, which is, I guess, the the week before uh, U.S. Memorial Day. And, and that was a beautiful weekend. My parents were up. We did all kinds of stuff outside. And uh, I don't feel like we had much in the way of spring this year. It was kind of just... Uh, cold and disgusting and then boom hot and summery so um i'm glad that summer's here winter's over i enjoy winter as well it's those transitional seasons i don't really love but enough about the weather uh let's get on to the news not a ton to talk about this week at least uh, not a ton that i came across just two little things so first a bit more news on the Zenimax id Oculus VR lawsuit situation. So it appears that Zenimax, and, and by extension id, uh, is alleging that Oculus VR execs had been working with John Carmack uh, you know, long before he, he left id and moved on to uh, and moved on to Oculus VR, and then uh, Oculus VR was acquired by Facebook. And uh, apparently during this time, they're alleging that uh, he appropriated or they appropriated uh, what ZeniMax is referring to as trade secrets relating to virtual reality technology. Now, Oculus continues to state that uh, this lawsuit has no merit. It's crazy. And uh, they have not misappropriated anything one way or the other. Who knows? I guess we'll see how it, it shakes out. But an interesting thing that this lawsuit does bring to light that I don't think anyone was really aware of before is just how much id had apparently invested in VR research uh, before Carmack left for Oculus. So uh, I got a link to an Engadget story here that kind of outlines things a little bit more. Zenimax's accusations, Oculus's response. And uh, I have a feeling this is going to be going on for quite a while as, uh, as lawsuits tend to do. But, uh, you know, as long as there's something interesting to say about it, I'll, I'll keep an eye out. Now, next in the news, uh, this isn't really game-related, but uh, if you grew up at the same time that I did, you will be interested in this Kickstarter. So as of yesterday, LeVar Burton launched a campaign aiming to raise a million dollars in an effort to develop a web version of his long-running passion project, Reading Rainbow. Now, two years ago, so... Well, maybe even rolling a bit further back. Back in 2008, so I guess that's about six years ago, uh, Reading Rainbow finally went off the air on TV. I actually had no idea. The show ran from 1983 to 2008, basically solid without cancellation. Uh, So after going off the air in 2008, two years ago in 2012, uh, they launched a a very successful tablet app, Reading Rainbow tablet app. Uh, But... One problem there is that the kids they're most trying to reach out to with, you know, to to engender the love of reading and all that are those who who lack the opportunity and the resources to learn to read. And uh, so these kids who, you know, may live in poor neighborhoods and, and, you know, live in poor families because they don't have access to 
you know, the opportunity to learn to read, they, they probably also don't have access to a tablet because, you know, frankly, an iPad, even a cheap one costs what, like 500 bucks. Uh, so this campaign is designed to bring Reading Rainbow to the web and into the classroom. So by having it on the web, it'll basically be as accessible as it can be. You know, if anything, uh, kids that don't have tablets or anything like that may have an old computer or they may be able to go and use a computer at their school. They may be able to go and use a computer at their local library, something like that. So, uh, you know, reading Rainbow is, is, is one of the things that really got me into reading as a kid. And uh, I'm very, very glad it's back in, in a form that can speak to the kids of today. Like a TV show just honestly doesn't have the capability to do anymore. Kids don't really watch that much TV anymore. Or maybe they do, maybe they don't. But uh, it's not the way it used to be. So if you believe in reading Rainbow and you believe in child literacy, and hey, who doesn't, uh, I strongly suggest you take a look at this campaign. There's over a month left. It basically launched, uh, they launched a 35 day campaign and they reached their goal in about 11 hours. But, uh, I'm more than confident they can use all the help they can get to make this happen. And you can find that on Kickstarter. Just check uh, search for reading rainbow. And of course I will link it in the show notes as I always do. So that's it for the news really, really quick. And, uh, let's get on with things. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for So, like I yammered about in the beginning, this week I'm breaking the mold uh, as I do from time to time. I'm not covering a game from the DOS or pre-Windows XP era. I am, in fact, uh, covering the most recent game I've ever covered. Uh, All is not lost, though, as uh, this game is certainly... Uh, can find its roots in uh, in a much beloved DOS series. I'm not covering Watchdogs, don't worry. <laughs> uh, this week we'll be discussing Tesla Effect: A Tex Mercy Murphy Adventure. Tesla Effect is the sixth entry in the Tex Murphy series. It was developed by Big Finish Games and published by Atlas Software. This all went down less than a month ago on May seventh, twenty fourteen. So let's talk genre. Despite its modernity. Tesla Effect is most certainly of a classic genre. It is, without a doubt, a full motion video adventure game. Now, we've seen adventure games many, many times before, and this game is no exception to that description. For the uninitiated, however, an adventure game places the player into the role of one or more main characters. I'm getting pretty good at explaining adventure games. We do a lot of them. Uh, So early on in the game, the player is either officially presented with a quest or thrust into a situation where a quest is kind of inherently put to them. Uh, It is their goal in the game to complete said quest. Obstacles in adventure games generally don't require much in the way of reflexes. Most of the time, things that get in your way are puzzles in the form of logic, mathematics, pattern recognition, item combination, or simply piecing together information uh, found in the world and in interaction with non-player characters around you. Eventually, all the NPCs will have been spoken to, all the inventory items will have been combined, and uh, all puzzles will have been solved, which generally results in a large final confrontation with either the game's main antagonist or some other relatively epic payoff and resolution to the game's main questline. Uh, The other aspect of this particular adventure is one we've also seen a few times before. Not only is this an adventure game, but it is a full motion video adventure game. This, of course, means that all of your character's interactions are displayed via pre-recorded video clips complete with actors of varying talent and uh, generally with uh, you know acting in front of uh, green screen computer-generated backgrounds. So now that we know what we're getting into, let's talk about some story. You are listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So as I already said, this is the sixth entry into the Tex Murphy franchise. Uh, If you want to hear all about the previous games in great detail, I would direct you back to UMB Cast episode 38, entitled Tex Murphy. Uh, It was done back in October of 2013, where I covered all the other games in the series in detail. If you missed that show, go back now and listen to it. It's awesome, if I do say so myself. (laughs) Uh, Got some feedback. It was one of the better ones, uh, numbers-wise. It's one of the more popular ones, but we don't have to talk about that. Uh, That aside... I will do a very quick recap of the story so far. 
So we are Tex Murphy. Tex is a down-on-his-luck private investigator operating out of a small office on the third floor of the Ritz Hotel on Chandler Avenue in post-World War III San Francisco. Now, this is in the older, unshielded part of the city uh, where people are exposed to the red skies and radiation that was left at the end of the Third World War. Tex is one of the lucky ones. He has a natural immunity to radiation and thus looks just like you and me. Uh, This can't be said for most of the other residents of Chandler Avenue, many of whom show very, very clear signs of genetic mutation. Tex is the epitome of the flat-footed film noir detective stereotype. That is, except that he's kind of a klutz and he's also sort of an alcoholic, though... I don't know if that's really outside of character for a film noir detective. Uh, Among the cast of characters we are introduced to on Chandler Avenue is Chelsea Bando, who runs the newsstand across the street from Texas' office. Through his adventures, he and Chelsea strike up a relationship. The final game of the series up to this point, Overseer, retells the story of Tex's first big case in a series of flashbacks, which are framed by a date between Tex and Chelsea. As I believe I mentioned back in episode 38, that game ended in a huge cliffhanger which went unresolved for over 15 years due to the acquisition of Access Software by Microsoft. Well, this is no more. Where am I? Is this a dream? Not quite, Murphy. Then you're the the big P.I. in the sky? That's right, Murphy. But now is not the time for you to be here. There is a vast and malignant evil at work on the Earth, and fate, for some reason that even I cannot fathom, has chosen you to oppose it. But why me? I'm no more thrilled about it than you are. Nevertheless, your fate has been decided. So this is the first thing we encounter when we launch the game. After this, we are presented with a message thanking the 7,000-plus backers whose contributions made this game possible. We then roll into the story itself. they've been refurbishing for years, but it never seems to improve. Not exactly great for business, but it holds a strange attraction for me. I've cracked some pretty big cases over the years, you may even have heard of me, but I don't do much investigating anymore. These days, I'm known for being a man who gets things done, no matter what the cost. You got a job that pays? I'll do it, no questions asked. I can't really remember why I became a PI. Maybe I was drawn to the romance, adventure, and independence it offered. Or maybe because I believed in its code of honor. That a man can remain untarnished as others sink into a cesspool of lies, corruption, and greed. A man better than the world around him.
a set of principles can slowly slip from your grasp. The world has a way of beating you into submission. Circumstances change. The guilty aren't always punished. Temptations become obsessions, and love can be violently taken, leaving it empty and hollow. Each day, innocence fades, and your character weakens. That's not all at once, but a piece at a time until you can't be put back together again. You finally realize the only way to get ahead in this world is to make sure you're on the winning side, and then do anything you can to stay alive. I don't know why I'm so reflective tonight. Maybe I finally crossed the Rubicon, but that's not true either. I passed that sign miles back and didn't even pause to take a picture. Maybe I just feel extra guilty tonight for what I'm about to do. There was a time when I would have never agreed to do something this despicable. I can't explain why I do this, but maybe Judas would understand. It is 2050. Seven years have passed since, spoiler alert, skip ahead 10 seconds, but I'm going to say it again anyways in a little while. Uh, it's been seven years since Tex and Chelsea were attacked and apparently killed at the end of Overseer. It seems that Tex, at least, has uh, survived the attack and is into some shady dealings that the old lovable Tex Murphy that we know would not have been a party to. As we heard right at the end of the intro, there is an attack. We don't actually see the attack happening. It's all happening uh, behind a, a black screen. As the game proper begins, Tex wakes up on the fire escape outside of his office, and uh, he is completely out of it. He's got a big gash on his forehead and a strange injection mark on his arm. So this is where the fun begins. This is also where we get to start playing the game. As Tex gets up, we are given control. Well, not right away. We are first introduced to our smart Alex, basically our digital PDA Siri-like sidekick, and uh, he gives us the option to run through a tutorial. So first things first, let's figure out how to move. This is one place where there is a marked improvement over previous games. Ignoring the first two non-full motion video games in the series, the FMV text games have always, in my opinion, had very odd controls. At least in Under a Killing Moon and Pandora Directive, uh, you had two kind of interaction modes, I guess we could call them. You had movement and interactive. Interactive mode was where your view was fixed and the mouse cursor was free to allow you to inspect items in the scene. Movement mode, Remove the mouse cursor and lock the mouse motion to kind of pivoting your, your viewpoint around and moving you uh, back and forth. Personally, I found this, uh, this movement system incredibly squirrely and, and frankly somewhat irritating at times. Well, in Tesla Effect, we dispense with this concept of movement modes. Interactions in the world are done from the same first-person view as in the previous games, but with Thank God, standard FPS controls, WASD to move text around, and uh, there's a crosshair in the center of the view. Placing that crosshair on items allows activation of a, a default function, such as look for non-inventory items, or otherwise pick up if it's something you could grab and throw in your inventory. Uh, right-clicking, I believe, 99% sure if I remember right, it's right-clicking, also brings up an action wheel, allowing you to select other options such as look, pick up, inventory, quick travel, and it also provides you access to the game's built-in hint system. Compared to previous efforts in the series, the controls are just great. 
uh, I use mouse and keyboard. I'm not sure if the game supports a game controller, but if it does, I suspect that would be uh, just a fine way to play it as well. It might play quite nice with an Xbox 360 controller. Also, like in, uh, in previous text games, the game can be played in two gameplay modes. Firstly, we have entertainment mode. This mode allows access to the in-game hint system at the cost of points and uh, also allows certain puzzles to be skipped, also at the cost of points. Finally, it offers the use of Texas flashlight. The flashlight does not only shed light onto a dark situation, but also causes important interactable objects to sparkle when the flashlight's beam passes over them. Gamer mode, on the other hand, is for the hardcore. No hints, no skippable puzzles, and bonus points if you finish certain puzzles within certain time limits. Not my cup of tea, but fun if you like a challenge. So, we start looking around the office, and uh, we are quickly inundated with text nostalgia. Uh, the office is basically the same, and clicking on certain items around, uh, around, around the room trigger flashbacks of memorable scenes from previous games. Uh, clicking Tex's hat collection shows us Tex losing his gun out the window at the beginning of Under a Killing Moon, lots of other stuff like that. This is a concept that is pervasive throughout the more historical locations in the game. So looking around, uh, we see that Tex was in the midst of some odd research, though he seems to have no memory of, uh, of starting that research and no idea why he's even doing it. We also find a briefcase filled with more cash than Tex has ever seen laying around open in the corner. Looks like it's kind of thrown there. Uh, Tex hides it in his room, and uh, we then head outside. One thing we notice on uh, Chandler Avenue right away is that Chelsea's newsstand is an abandoned mess. So, try and figure out what's going on, because Tex seems to have no idea. Uh, let's go see Tex's buddy, Louis Lamince at the Bruin Stew to figure out what the crap is happening here. This is where things start to get even weirder. Entering the Bruin Stew, we encounter an attractive brunette who seems not only to know Tex, but to know him very, shall we say, intimately. Uh, Tex has no clue who she is. We soon find out that her name is Taylor. Uh, she's a reporter, and she's also Louis's niece. As she leaves for work, Louis comes out the back of the restaurant, but he's not quite as friendly as, uh, as we may remember. Ah, Mr. Mighty. What are you doing here? Louis, you look great. Uh, I hardly recognized you. I mean, how did you lose so much weight so fast? Was it some sort of hypo-lipo session? I've been this weight for some time now. You just never noticed. Hey, tell me who that woman was who just left here. And why does she act like she knows me? Why you gotta be like that? You know Taylor. A little too well, you ask me. You drunk again? I told you. You ain't allowed in here. You've been drinking. Well, I don't feel drunk. Just, my brain's a little foggy. What happened to your head? I don't know. I woke up on the fire escape. I go into my apartment and everything is different. The street, Chelsea's newsstand, you. Everything is completely different. I mean, I don't know whether I'm tripping here or having a bad dream or something. What's the last thing you remember uh, before you woke up? Uh, I don't know. Something with Chelsea. Chelsea? What day do you think it is? No, hold on. What year do you think it is? <sighs> what year? Are you serious? It's 2043. Oh, jeez. Look at that calendar. Over there? On the fridge? 50. What the hell's going on here? Last night, Chelsea and I went to the Golden Pagoda. I think the wording was uh, very, very attractive. Oh, no! What? It's me. Look, somebody has stolen our car. I mean, here I am. My speeder's stolen out of here. I'm sitting on a great... Oi, uh, would you guys like a lift to the cop shop? 
No, we'll walk. He's really just trying to do us a favor. Chelsea, I'm getting a really bad feeling about this. It's like some sort of deja vu. The Fabergé World Tour the most exotic and exquisite exhibit of the day. Who's your mate? Oh, that's Tex. He's having a very bad day. That true, Tex? Oh, no. Everything's just going peachy. Well, things could get worse, huh? He shot me. He, he shot both of us. He shot me. There's nothing. Why isn't there anything? That's what I'm trying to tell you, Mike. It wasn't last night. It was seven years ago. What the hell is that? Looks like you got injected with something. Maybe that's what's messing with your head. Or maybe it's that goose egg. Either way, buddy, you gotta see a doctor. What about Chelsea? Where is she? I mean, is she okay? You said to never say nothing about her. Never again. So, Tex appears to have lost the last seven years of his life, and apparently, we soon find out, over those last seven years, he's become sort of a bastard. He expanded out from doing simple PI work into a guy with a reputation for getting things done. A lot more like the slightly edgier-voiced Tex that we heard in the game's intro. Well, because of his memory loss, he's back to the same old Tex that we knew and loved, except for one thing. Everyone seems to think that Chelsea is dead. Everyone except Tex, that is. So at this point, his mission is clear. Find out why he was attacked, what that injection mark on his arm was, why his memory is gone, and what happened to Chelsea. In the process of doing this, he slowly uncovers a mystery involving murders, double crosses, and the lost inventions of Nikola Tesla. I'm going to leave it at that. To accept, uh, you know, for the story, except to say that depending on certain decisions that you make throughout the game, uh, you can experience multiple endings. So if you enjoy the game enough, there's certainly room for replayability. Next, of course, since we're talking gameplay, we need to discuss the puzzles. Uh, the bulk of them are standard mid 90s adventure puzzles, number progressions, kind of aligning items, aligning lasers, all kinds of stuff like that. Uh, the puzzles themselves aren't necessarily super difficult, but there's one point in the game, uh, the infamous day five, where you're presented with a series of challenges and here the frequency of puzzles goes through the roof. And if you're not playing in entertainment mode, it can be pretty grating. Uh, you complete one puzzle, only to be presented by another one with virtually kind of no reward. You know, usually in an adventure game, you solve a puzzle, you get through a door, something happens. Either you find a new area, you get an important item, or, you know, you see some kind of cinematic. But, uh, you know, on day five, it's one puzzle after the other, and it becomes, it can, if uh, if you're not uh, looking at hints or you're, you don't really love puzzles, uh, it can be a bit uh, a bit of a slog. Also, later on in the game, the world does open up quite a bit, and um, the game process can turn into a little bit of a pixel hunt across big multi-level environments. But those issues aside, the gameplay of Tesla Effect is certainly what it promises to be, a throwback to Tex Murphy games of old. Sure, things have been HDified, and uh, some modern quality of life improvements such as nicer controls and virtually constant autosaves exist, but this is very much a retro game. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... So, we've got a few technical points to discuss about this game. Of course, we're not in the realm of old games here. We aren't worrying about 386s and boot disks and largest executable program size. Uh, to run Tesla Effect, you're looking at a modern system. 
Steam says you need at least Windows XP and a 2 gigahertz dual core CPU with an NVIDIA 200 series graphics card, DirectX 9OC, 9.0C compatible devices, and a whopping 15 gigabytes of available drive space, which is frankly bigger than most hard drives of computers around the time of games I normally talk about. Tesla Effect is built on the Unity engine, which is a very, very popular current gen game engine created by Unity Technologies. Uh, its core is written in C++, but uh, this core functionality is exposed via a C-sharp API. There's other languages. I think there's a JavaScript API and some weird language I've never heard of, but C-sharp has kind of grown out to become the predominant uh, API language that most developers use. I can't quite recall if I've ever mentioned it before on the show, but uh, an API is an application programming interface. It's basically a set of predefined functions that uh, a system exposes for external developers to use. Now, I know I have a few Unity programmers who listen to the show, so I'm not going to go into huge detail, and I hope I won't get this all horribly wrong. Uh, I'll say that I've dabbled in the engine a little bit, meaning that I've run through a few of the tutorials, so I have just enough knowledge to probably be dangerous and break a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, the engine is multi-platform, so you basically just develop the game as you would any other way, and uh, then once you're done... You simply select the platform to publish it to, and boom, you've potentially got a game that runs on PC, Mac, and Linux. In addition, it can run on mobile devices and natively in a, in a web browser. Now, in reality, it's not really that simple since there's obviously vast performance and hardware differences between all those platforms, but this multi-platform support is one of Unity's claims to fame. Also, well, the professional edition of Unity costs upwards of $1,500 US dollars, there is a free version for personal and small business use. I believe its major limitation is that you can't publish to consoles. But hey, we're PC gamers, so who cares? If you're interested in game development, if you're younger, if you want to get into game development, if you're older and you want to dabble, maybe you have an idea for a game, Unity is a great place to get your feet wet. You could check out its site at unity3d.com. There's good tutorials, there's good documentation. If you're already familiar with C-sharp, if you're already familiar with JavaScript, which I know quite a few people are, uh, definitely a good place to start. So another interesting aspect of Tesla Effect from a technical perspective is, of course, the full motion video. I mean, realistically, I don't think we've seen a true FMV game in at least the last 10 years, if not more. So what did they do to take this 90s game design technology into 2014? Well, easy, they kicked up the resolution. Now, I found some conflicting reports, and if anyone knows any better, please correct me, but my understanding is that the source video was actually captured at 4K resolution. That's something on the order of 3840 by 2160, a touch higher than the 320 by 200 and 640 by 480 I usually talk about. Though the video was captured originally at this resolution, it seems that the, in the game itself, it was downgraded to standard HD at 1920 by 1080. Even if this is the case and um, you, know, you can't actually play the game at 4K natively, this is by far the best looking Tex Murphy game ever. But despite this high res recording, the style of the video was purposefully kept in line with the look of previous games. You know, it might be sharper, but it's still pretty cheesy with actors filmed in front of green screens and composited onto somewhat simplified virtual sets. This isn't due to any sort of technical limitation, however, it was a conscious artistic decision and one I personally think makes sense. Uh, the game's music, is composed by Bobby James, who uh, I frankly couldn't find a ton on. He's done work on other projects for Big Finish Games, in addition to uh, work on TV and films. I hope to hear more from James in the future. I think the soundtrack to the game is just great. I especially like the uh, the music under the intro, which you heard back when uh, when I played that uh, that audio clip from the game. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... 
Okay, dev story time. So a little bit of a refresher. I covered this a little bit in uh, in the original text episode, but uh, I think it bears a little bit of repeating. And then we're gonna obviously flow into uh, into the rest of the story. So Tex Murphy is the brainchild of Chris Jones. During the development of the first game, Mean Streets, a digitized portrait of Jones was used to represent our hero Tex. This didn't really matter at the time, but when the series got into its third iteration, there was an issue. Under a Killing Moon was to be an FMV adventure, but Tex already had a face. It was Jones. Despite no real acting background, he took on the role and became the Tex Murphy that we know. Another thing to point out uh, about Under a Killing Moon is that this is the point where Aaron Connors also came on board. Together, Chris Jones and Aaron Connors would develop the Tex Murphy franchise all the way up to Overseer. For more detail there, of course, check out episode 38. So, Access Software had developed the fifth game in the series as a tech demo that was going to go out with an Intel hardware bundle deal. They had a full sequel for Pandora Directive in mind, but put it on hold to do this quick contract. The bundle contract fell through, of course, uh, and they decided to finish Overseer on their own and throw in a cliffhanger ending that would lead directly into the sixth game, entitled Trance. Trance soon expanded into a trilogy of three games that would be named Chance, Polarity, and finally, Trance. However, as sometimes happens in the business world, shortly after Overseer's release, Access Software was purchased by Microsoft. A combination of declining sales in the Tex Murphy series and this acquisition caused the three Tex sequels to be put on indefinite hold so that the Access team could basically churn out a new version of Lynx every year. In October 2004, Microsoft sold Access to Take-Two Interactive, who renamed the studio IndieBuilt. Sadly, before they could do anything real... IndieBuilt shuttered its doors in 2005. During this time, Connors and Jones had been putting out a series of flash animations and kind of old-timey fun radio shows to try and tell fans where they had intended to take the story of Tex Murphy. However, by 2008, even those little additional uh, bonus features had also stopped. Why? Well, it turns out that Jones and Connors had been able to acquire the rights to Tex and were planning a new game to be developed by their new studio, Big Finish Games. They hired as many people as they could from the Access Software days and got rolling. So, they had the rights to text. Now, what to do with them? Well, the first idea was to publish a casual game featuring our plucky detective hero. After looking into it a little bit more and considering their ideas, they ended up deciding against this course. It was felt that text wouldn't appeal to casual gamers and a casual game wouldn't satisfy text fans. It was basically a completely lose-lose situation. Instead, Connors, Jones, and the rest of the Big Finish team figured they could fund a full-on text adventure with the proceeds from sales of unrelated casual games. With that, or maybe even slightly before that, they posted Secret Project Fedora to their website with the intent to bring text back one way or another. However, after three years and a few casual game releases, they still hadn't started any real work on the new adventure. This means that we're now in 2012. And 2012 means one thing to the indie gaming world. Double fine adventure. With the success of Tim Schafer's Kickstarter, the flood began. Big Finish announced their campaign in May of 2012 with a goal of $450,000. This would be supplemented by $300,000 from Big Finish for a total budget of $750,000. The new game was promised to be a 3D full motion video adventure in the vein of previous text games, and yes, it would pick up where the cliffhanger ending of Overseer left us. As those of you that followed it may remember, not only did the campaign reach its goal, it exceeded it, raising a total of $612,489, 36% over its goal, and meeting three stretch goals, which consisted of additional story points, additional platform releases, text translation in more languages, and an in-game golf simulator and a live orchestral recording of the game's soundtrack. The Kickstarter campaign ended on June 16th, and production on the game began on June 18th. In August, it was announced Unity was the selected game engine, and then the real work could begin. By February 4th, 2013, principal photography had begun and ran until February 22nd. Actor-wise, quite a few of the originals returned, including, of course, Chris Jones' Tex, 
Randall Edwards as Louis Lemintz, Suzanne Barnes as Chelsea Bando, and Douglas Vandergrift as Rook Garner. In addition, June Lockhart of Lost in Space fame was brought on to play Margaret Leonard, who plays a very important role in the plot, as you'll see as you play through the game. Other featured actors were Larry Thomas, a.k.a. Seinfeld's infamous Soup Nazi, and Mystery Science Theater's own Kevin Murphy as the voice of your smart Alex. Now, he did the voice of Tom Servo, who's the the gumball machine-headed robot friend on MST3K, and there's even an inside joke about that early on in the game when you look at a gumball machine sitting in, uh, in Tex's office. On July 19th, 2013, Nikola Tesla's birthday, the name of the game was finally announced. Tesla Effect, a Tex Murphy adventure, would be the sixth entry into the series. So until now, Big Finish had been carrying the load on their own, promoting the game, getting actors, and generally pushing the development through its kind of standard life cycle. In August, the announcement came that Big Finish was partnering with Japan-based Atlas Software for support in marketing, distribution, and QA. These are all tasks that publishers generally assist with. This relationship wasn't without its bumps, however, as uh, Atlas's parent company, Index Holdings, was going through bankruptcy, and during the development of Tesla Effect, Atlas was sold off to Sega. Uh, This didn't appear to have any lasting effects on the development, but I'm sure it may have caused uh, a few few headaches interacting with, uh, with the publisher. So the game was originally scheduled for release April 22nd, 2014. However, on that day, Big Finish put out a pretty humorous update in the vein of the game, uh, which announced a push of the release date to May 7th. It was felt that two additional weeks were needed to quote-unquote put final polish on the game, or more likely to squash some final show-stopping bugs. So, 16 days late, Tesla Effect released. Reviews have been somewhat mixed and basically fall into two camps. First, there's the reviews that treat it as any other game. These tend to be a bit more negative. Second, Uh, There's the reviews that treat it as an adventure game and a callback to previous games in the series. These reviews tend to be much more positive. So where can you get your hands on Tesla Effect? Well, this is a new game, so it's easy. It's available on both Steam and GOG for $19.99 USD. Uh, I believe even the Steam version is DRM-free, though I may be mistaken about that one. Uh, Also, I don't believe any box copies of the game are available for retail, but who the hell buys PC games at retail these days anyways? Okay, so now that we know all about the game, let's see what you guys have to say about it. First, we have a message from Brian. He writes, I wouldn't call myself a disgruntled backer of the Tesla effect, but I'm definitely disappointed. I'm not the world's biggest Tex Murphy fan. The only game I put significant time into was Under a Killing Moon, which I bought when it was new. I never finished it, damn security bots, but uh, I really loved that game. It had beautiful environments that were a pleasure to sleuth around, it had quirky characters with strong personalities and great costumes and makeup, but most of all, it was a technological marvel. As much of a pain as it was swapping four CD-ROMs all the time, It was worth it to see that full motion video. Well, technically half motion video, since often only one person would be animated on screen at a time. I also really loved the unique way they coupled synthesized MIDI music with digitally recorded drums. I liked Under a Killing Moon enough to immediately back the Tesla Effect Kickstarter. I pretty much forgot about it until they released a trailer that absolutely thrilled me. I had very high hopes for the game, and many of those hopes were satisfyingly fulfilled, but not all. Big Finish games make great use of the Unity engine. The environments are tons of fun to explore, and the first-person shooter controls made it effortless to walk and look around. The HD video is sharp and beautiful and skillfully shot, with rare exceptions. The CGI cutscenes are very cool and show an incredible sci-fi San Francisco. Great music, warmly cheesy acting, and most importantly, it all culminates in a very good first five or six hours where I was certain this would surpass Under a Killing Moon in every way. Sadly... A few bad design choices utterly deflated my enjoyment. Uh, The game completely degenerated into an unforgiving series of Mensa IQ test puzzles. Series is a kind word for it. It's more like a gauntlet, a meat grinder, puzzle after puzzle, mazes, sliding tiles, matching colors with shapes, the centuries-old sheep crossing the river puzzle. Tesla effect reduced me to a rat in a mad scientist laboratory solving puzzles for morsels of cheese. I'm more pinky than brain. 
These puzzles, combined with sneaking and finding hidden objects, seem to be all that remained in the game, so I gave up at the 10-hour mark. No game in recent memory has degenerated my enjoyment so thoroughly from high optimism to utter disgust. This is a decades-old studio with oodles of experience and some of the genre's best stories and characters. I cannot fathom how they ran out of steam so quickly. Now, the game does have both casual and gamer difficulties, the former allowing you to skip puzzles. Unfortunately, you cannot switch from one mode to the other, and I had no interest in replaying 10 hours to get back to where I was, so I stuck out my tongue and blew the raspberry of death. Done. For my six hours of enjoyment, it was well worth the low price I paid. However, my memory of this game will be a big fat stink. Everything about this game exceeded my expectations except for the actual gameplay, and that's primarily what I bought. I cannot recommend this game. Thanks for the fantastic show and for the soapbox. Well, thank you, Brian, and, and you know, it's it's unfortunate to hear that you didn't have a good time. Uh, I purposefully didn't go into a hardcore gamer mode because, frankly, I'm not very good at solving puzzles, and, um, you know, I usually end up either resorting to... Uh, to YouTube or to a walkthrough or to something like that. So I figured, Hey, if there's a, a hint system, then, uh, then I'm going to, uh, I'm going to use it. I did get to that part today to, 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 to the gauntlet, if you will. And, uh, it was definitely easier with, with the hint system, but, uh, I definitely resorted to it a lot. And, uh, at other times I also resorted to some, uh, YouTube playthroughs. So I do understand where you're coming from. So thank you very much for the email. Next, an email from Martin. He writes, Hey Joe, I can't wait for my next big car trip so I can catch up on UMB cast, but you are definitely still doing a great job and please keep it up. I am writing to you today to share my experience with the new Tex Murphy game. I remember Project Fedora back during the early phases right after the Double Fine production success. I wasn't familiar with the franchise, but I still wish the project the best of luck. Besides, I had Star Citizen choke holding my wallet. It wasn't until your Tex Murphy episode did I, that I got interested in the franchise and I began watching long plays of the games, the ones I could bear anyways. So now the game is out and I have an appreciation for it. Uh, let me give you my verdict. Even though I haven't finished the game all the way, I can safely proclaim that despite its extra oozy cheesiness, I'm in love with this game. It's my kind of humor and the dry wit of text catches me off guard and constantly has me in stitches. I definitely recommend it to anyone who is a fan of adventure games. Just be sure to lower any AAA expectations you have as the environments are lackluster at best. I can't wait to hear you prove that dreadful worst Star Wars games list wrong, if you know what I mean. Peace out. Well, thank you, Martin. And um, yeah, I, I will agree that uh, they use the Unity engine quite well, but uh, the environments aren't the, the richest and most detailed environments I've ever seen in my life. And... Um, you know, I don't know if that was a question of time or if it was a question of keeping things in line with the previous games. I suspect it's that. And uh, Martin, let me, I'll let you in on a little secret earlier in the show than I'm going to. Uh, you're going to be happy about the worst Star Wars games list and me proving it wrong. Just uh, wait for the end until I announce the next episode. All right. So next we have an email from Klaus and he writes, Hey Joe, I just wanted to give you my two cents on the new Tex Murphy. It's not going to be detailed, mostly because I haven't finished it yet, but I will comment uh, what I have experienced so far. I backed the Kickstarter solely on the memories of the old games, and I must say, the new game is classic Tex Murphy for better or worse. It's now in HD, and the FMV looks awesome. The problem is that the clarity of the video really makes it clear that the game was on a budget, so the actors, and especially the ones wearing makeup, look bad. The acting is still extremely bad and hammy, but that is classic Tex in my mind, so I don't mind that. Chris Jones is the star of the game, just as he was in the old games, and he's the bright spot of the cast. His timing and humor is still excellent, and he is 50% of the experience, I think. The graphics beyond the FMVs look uh, low-res and grainy, but it has its charm, I guess. It runs fluently as it should, uh, and you're never in doubt what objects are. The puzzles range from easy to how on earth do I even begin to solve this? What I mean by that is the puzzles get really hard at the end of the game, and I had to use the inbuilt hint system several times towards the end. The story is good, I think, but again, it boils down to Chris Jones being in the scenes. The other actors are not that good, with some of them being really bad. Stephen Valentine is probably the best of the supporting cast, but I'm probably prejudiced because I love him as an actor. He is Alistair in Dragon Age after all, and I loved that role. Overall, the biggest compliment I can give that game is it is a Tex Murphy game. There is no doubt about it. You feel that from the start of the game, uh, you feel that from the start of the game and it feels comfortable and safe. And I guess the best word to describe the game is safe. 
The game does not try anything other than being in HD, and I think it could have been cool to see the game taken in some modern-day gameplay conventions. Uh, That might sound like I'm negative and down on the game, but I had fun and I enjoyed the experience, and I hope there will be more text games. I hope my little review, combined with Joe's probably more thorough review, can cast some light on an extinct extinct genre in gaming. Thanks for all the hours of entertainment, Joe, and I look forward to the next UMB cast. Greetings, Klaus. Well, thank you, Klaus, and, and... that was a good review and, and nice and nice and fair and balanced, I'll have to say. And, and yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's true. I mean, the, the acting is cheesy and that's what it is. And that's a text game. That's the whole, the whole point. And I guess just like the previous email said, the graphics, eh, you know, they could be better, but it'll be, it would be interesting to find out if, like I said, that was a, a technical choice or a time choice or, or an artistic choice. So finally, we have a short note and then a voicemail from Trolls, the Space Quest historian. And he writes, Hey Joe, thank you again for the opportunity to leap to the defense of a game I love. Does text need defending? I don't know. I think he does. Because the kickstarted adventures that have come out so far, Larry Reloaded, Mobius, have been sort of underwhelming and fail to set the world on fire. I think the last thing we should do is uh, back the ambulance up even further and nitpick when a really fine product comes along. So, critics of Tesla effect. In the mortal were in the immortal words of Bernard Black, fictional proprietor of the fictional bookstore in the eponymously titled sitcom Black Books, you are looking for things to complain about. All the best, trolls. And here we go with Trolls' voicemail. Hi, I'm the Space Quest historian. And I am here to talk to you today about Tex Murphy Tesla effects. Uh, because, uh, you know, I've been a Tex Murphy fan since, well, basically since the old Space Quest days back in the early 90s and, uh, you know, started playing Under a Killing Moon, thought, wow, man, four CDs, full motion video. Wait, why did, why does the screen always uh, keep changing sizes? Oh, who gives a shit? It's James Earl Jones. Ah, and then Pandora Directive comes out and there's six CDs and branching paths and uh, uh, more full motion video and this time all the screen stays in the right size and uh, uh, and the acting suddenly improves and uh, there's a professional director at the helm and all this stuff so Pandora Directive, what a game and then Overseer comes out and you go alright, so we're in Microsoft Windows now uh, well, they had a short development time uh, well, they couldn't really do the game that they wanted so they, instead they had to remake the first game um, but then again, by this time I had had already uh, expanded my uh, text fandom to include playing the uh, first two games, Mean Streets and Martian Memorandum. Uh, so I was kind of well versed in uh, the in, in what is now text lore. Uh, I I would go so far as to say that I actually had a pretty good grasp uh, about Tex Murphy and uh, what kind of dude he was, and uh, I would even go as far as calling myself kind of a Tex Murphy aficionado. So uh, when Overseer came out, I was like, all right, well, let's see how they can improve on Mean Streets. Shouldn't be too difficult. Just take away the flight sim and uh, all the characters with with uh, weird sexual funny names, and uh, you know, introduce FMV elements. And um, despite that thing being buggy as hell, I still thought it was a pretty damn good game. So when it ended on a cliffhanger, I was like, "Yay! This is going to kick ass." What's coming now is going to be a trilogy of fantastic. What? It's cancelled? What? They got bought by Microsoft? What? They're just doing golf simulators now? Fuck you! Fuck you, Microsoft! And uh, a, a string of other expletives followed, which I shan't repeat here because I don't want to uh, uh, hurt Joe too much or his listeners. Um, suffice it to say that when uh, Access Software uh, folded and became something else entirely, and uh, when subsequently Aaron Connors and uh, Chris Jones uh, tried unsuccessfully to restart the Tex Murphy series throughout a very, very long number of years, um, I grew increasingly disheartened that the cliffhanger that they had left us on in Overseer would never be resolved. And uh, thank fuck that it actually did with the advent of Kickstarter. After, you know, promises of radio theaters, which weren't quite as interesting as I'd hoped, uh, promises of casual games, which still sounds like the fucking worst idea I've ever heard, right up to, right, we've got the money to do this, Badass FMV, true Tex Murphy game, the one you've all waited and uh, the sort of game that you all hoped we would make eventually. Right, here it is, dudes. And out comes Tesla Effect. And I boot this thing up on my big ass TV. 
and uh, sit back with the volume control in one hand and the keyboard in the other and uh, quickly uh, find out that I have to uh, drop the volume control and, and grab for the mouse because this is F, uh, FPS style controls. Anyway, I boot the thing up on my big ass TV and I am blown away. The intro looks so fucking good. And the FMV looks fucking fucking good. Yes, there were two fucks in that sentence. And everything about the game. I mean, just walking around Chandler Avenue. Once it actually drops you into Chandler Avenue and you walk around there and you uh, run into old characters and you start talking to them. It's, you know, for me, it's a big trip down Nostalgia Lane. You would call it Chandler Avenue. I call it Nostalgia Lane. But for newcomers, uh, they actually managed to take the amnesia trope and make it interesting. You'd think we've seen enough of adventure games that have the main character wake up with no memory of who the hell he is, and he has to find out during the game. And I will, I will admit, I'll be the first to admit, when I read that, you know, Tex wakes up with no memory of the past seven years, I went, really? Really? That's the best you could think of? But it works. It absolutely fucking works. And so does all this reintrodu- uh, 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 reintroduction to the other characters. Because, you know, he hasn't seen them for seven years, and apparently he's been a bit of a bastard since, uh, since we left him. So, uh, it actually works. It, it, it turns out that, uh, you know, Tex is back to his normal self as the game starts, but he's been a complete and total rat bastard for the past seven years, and everyone's kind of afraid of him, so they all have to sort of learn, uh, to get to know him all over again. And that, again, that works. So, uh, newcomers and uh, old-timers are, in my view, equally taken care of with this game. And, uh, you know, I uh, I will confess, uh, much like uh, Joe uh, says, he uh, I, I haven't completed the game yet. I am uh, up to day seven at current time of recording, and uh, I was supposed to play it this weekend, didn't get around to it, you know, all this jazz. Um, but uh, a lot of... A heated discussion has erupted on my Twitter feed uh, with regards to the quality of the puzzles themselves. Everyone can pretty much agree that the uh, video looks awesome and the acting is uh, um, appropriately cheesy and at times. Uh, Chris Jones, in my opinion, does a fucking fantastic job in going back to the old Tex character. He looks and s- dresses and uh, acts the part uh, just like he did in Under Killing Moon and the Pandora Directive. Uh, and Overseer. I keep forgetting that one. But all the controversy has, has erupted over what's known as the Day 5 Crisis, or the Day 5 Curse, or whatever you want to call it. Everyone just hates Day 5. And I will admit freely that I play the game on Entertainment Mode, and I've played all the Tex Murphy games on Entertainment Mode, and here's why. Because gamer mode is really fucking hard. And I don't mean hard in the, uh, oops, uh, uh, I, I'm stuck on this puzzle, boohoo, what do I do? Gamer mode is out to punish you. There are no hints. You cannot use the hint system. Well, that's fine. We have the internet. Also, you have to beat all the logic puzzles. The seventh guestish puzzles have to beat those. You can't uh, skip them. You can't uh, go ask for hints. And these these can't be bypassed just as easily by looking at a walkthrough because some of them randomize at the start and all this jazz. And uh, just to piss you off even further, there's a timer on them. At least there used to be a timer in the, the Pandora Directive and in Overseer. I have not seeing if they, they reintroduced the timer in, uh, in Tesla Effect. I'm pretty sure they did, because they're dicks like that. Gamer mode is for the hardcore, and I mean really hardcore masochists. And I'm not one of those. I play on entertainment mode. And uh, pretty much everyone I've uh, talked to about uh, Tesla Effect say that Day 5 absolutely kicked their asses, and they gave up in frustration. Hi, Brian. Um... And uh, I managed to get to day five on entertainment mode, and I can see why they would give up in frustration, because day five is just one string of logic puzzles after another, and they're really, really fucking difficult. Now, there is no excuse in my book for starting a game on batshit insane level and then work your way down. You wouldn't start Doom on Nightmare if you've never played a 3D shooter before. You wouldn't. So uh, what what this, for me, amounts to is a lot of machismo and a lot of muscle waving and a lot of, I am starting this game on gamer mode because I'm a fucking gamer and blah, blah, blah. Bullshit. 
Start on entertainment mode. Get a feel for the game. Enjoy the game. Explore the story. Explore the characters. Talk to people. Have fun. And if some, if you come up across an obstacle, you can skip it. And then, and only after you've been entertained, you can go back and be challenged. I mean, what kind of rat bastard idiot does this the opposite way around? I I implore you. So uh, I just wanted to get that out there. Uh, that uh, for my sake, for my tastes, there has been far too much bitching about the puzzles in Tex Murphy Tesla Effect, especially the ones on day five. Um, so uh, I just wanted to put that out there. Yes, I know they recycled a lot of puzzles. Yes, I know that logic puzzles are not the most welcome addition to adventure games. This is not a seventh guest, 11th hour game. I know that. Uh, but we should have been complaining about this back in 1996 when they introduced these elements in the Pandora Directive. It's a bit too late to go there now, ladies and gentlemen. So uh, my advice is to play the game on entertainment mode to begin with and be wowed at, you know, the performance and the uh, technology, because the FMV does look, in 2K resolution, looks fucking impressive. So please, enjoy the game. Don't sit around moping because you started at the wrong difficulty setting. This has been an unwarrantedly long Space Quest rant historian thingy. I am the Space Quest historian, with a very low vocabulary and out of breath. And uh, back to you, Joe. Well, thank you so much trolls really really great really really detailed um i agree with you for the most part but uh i've definitely enjoyed you and uh you and brian uh <laughs> interacting on twitter in regard to uh to your thoughts about uh about tesla effect and i'm actually happy that you were both able to uh to give me give me a review here because i definitely got both of your both of your viewpoints and frankly you're Aside from the fact that Brian's a little more, well, definitely a lot more critical than than you are about it, you're not that far off. I mean, you both kind of pointed out the same uh, the same issues there. So, thank you, trolls, and thank you, everyone, for those emails. Okay, so now that everyone else has had their say, time for my pseudo unimportant verdict. Uh, I'm not going to ask if the game holds up today, more like, do I enjoy the game and would I recommend others play it? Well, this may not be surprising because I do this from time to time, but uh, the answer for me is twofold. First, if you're not a fan of the original text games, if you never played the original text games, you could probably give this one a pass. This isn't the game that's going to convince you that you missed out on the series and it won't change your mind if you played Under a Killing Moon and you hated it. It's sort of a game out of time. The gameplay is old, the FMV, well, sharp as hell, is still cheesy, and parts of the game, as we've heard, can be tedious and frustrating. However, if you are a fan of Tex Murphy games, or you're a fan of adventure games in general, or more specifically, full motion video adventures of the 90s, I do strongly suggest that you play this game. Did I personally enjoy it? Yes, and I still am. Uh, like most of the emailers, I haven't gotten to the end as of yet, but what I've experienced thus far has generally left me smiling. Now, as, as one of the emailers said, I believe it was Klaus, uh, the best thing I can say about this game is that it is most assuredly a Tex Murphy game. Despite the years separating Overseer from this game, it feels like we never left. And I'm not just saying this because I like the originals. I truly dislike Larry Reloaded, as an example. I felt like it was a sloppy game that was just trying to bank off of the name. With Tesla Effect, I feel like Aaron Connors and Chris Jones made the game they had always intended to make, the one that kept getting delayed and kept getting cancelled. The silly humor is there, the writing is there, the story is there, the environments are there, and frankly, I love the fact that they went out of their way not to make the FMV too shiny. Aside from being sharper, it still fits the genre. They made it look like a 90s full motion video adventure. It was a bold move that could have easily backfired on them, and despite the fact that some people say it did, to me, it didn't. The callbacks to the old games, even all the way back to Mean Streets, were great. I felt like the game was winking at me. You know, I wasn't the biggest Tex Murphy fan before, 
you know, I've only played the games when I covered them for episode 38. Uh, I'm a bigger fan now because this is how you bring an old series back from the grave. You manage expectations and you make no bones about what the game is. It's a Tex Murphy game in the spirit of all previous Tex Murphy games. And that is that. As a relatively recent fan of the franchise, I say, good job. And if you're like me, new fan or old, play this game. You are listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Okay, that's it for another show. I do enjoy covering a modern game every now and again. And even though this one is is more steeped in its roots than uh, than other modern takes on older games I've covered... Uh, I also, you know, just realized this is the first Kickstarter funded game I've covered as well. Hopefully we will see more of these in the future. Hint, hint, space venture. Trolls actually get on those Andromedans. I want to see that thing and I'm definitely going to do a show on that. All kidding aside, let's talk about uh, what I'm covering next time. So I checked and it turns out I haven't covered a Star Wars game since November of last year. That is a travesty. So uh, I decided to slip the Rebel Assault series into the queue for next time. Uh, I'm still contemplating whether or not I'll be including Rogue Squadron in this episode. Uh, At the moment, I'm pretty sure I am. But uh, if you guys have an opinion on the matter or anything else, drop me a line at podcast at umbcast.com. The show downright sucks if I don't have some thoughts from you guys. There's a lot of really good stuff this week, and uh, it's always better when, uh, when I hear from you. Thanks, as always, to Rick Moyer for his great audio work. You can find him over at moriamultimedia.com. Anything you want, podcast intro, outros, song stuff, websites, photography. He does it all. He is a renaissance man. Check out the show notes for this show and previous episodes at umbcast.com. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash umbcast. Follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash umbshow. And follow me personally at twitter.com slash billybob476. You can also find the show on YouTube at youtube.com slash umbcast where uh, I put some partial playthrough research type videos. Didn't have a chance to do it for this game, unfortunately, but uh, definitely going to be doing it for Rebel Assault. And I also have another little side kind of video project idea in mind, but uh, keep an eye on uh, Twitter, Facebook, and the YouTube channel and uh, and you'll see when, uh, when that goes up live. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, stream us to Stitcher Radio, leave me reviews. I love those five-star reviews, so please do. I've been stuck at 11 for a real long time, and I would love to get more of them. So that is that, and we will see you next time for Rebel Assault, here in the Upper Memory Block. Battle control terminated. You've been listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastroianni. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com. Write to Joe today at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at umbcast.com. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity? Or do you die here? Join.